0: You are listening to Talking
1: Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence.
0: And today, Neil, I wanted to talk to you about something uh, pretty specific that I'm hoping you can walk me through. Five papers for Mike Tipping, which to me just sounds like a really great New Yorker short story, but I don't think it's that.
1: No. So what this is, actually about five years ago, so it's everything's in fives today. I was down in Cambridge at the time I was based in Sheffield and I had a dinner with Mike Tipping and David Duvanoff and mike um is an amazing researcher who um was a postdoc when i was a phd student and uh, I, I i sort of love he worked on um things like the relevance vector machine he worked on um mixtures of probabilistic pca and probabilistic pca he derived the maximum likelihood solution for that though really really elegant work but he sort of went into industry for a number of years back in the day before like it was cool to be in i mean not that it was uncool before everyone, you know, he was like, it was a hipster industry, you know, it's sort of like, like in the, you know, he was like early there in industry being hipster about it. And then, um, but he's back now he's at, um, which is, is great for academia. He's actually, cause he's that type of hipster. He's now out of industry and at the university of Bath where, um, uh, he's teaching again. Uh, he, he teaches really, really well. He has great material. But he asked me, he said, I guess at the time he was still in industry and, and wasn't I don't think he'd, uh, he mentioned to me that evening, he said, if I were to read five papers from the last couple of years that capture the interesting, important stuff happening in ML, what would they be? And so I was thinking about that the other day. I was thinking I would find it a lot harder to give someone five papers today. And I don't know if that says something about me or the field or...
0: The like number of papers? Well,
1: just to cover the interesting things going on at MLSS in um Stellenbosch sebastian Novitsin was talking about gans and he was showing how many gan papers were being published a month and there was a, a number so large i don't even want to say it because it just seems it can't be right per month like something like 360 gan papers were being published on i guess archive so you know it's kind of a bit hard so obviously you would probably mention the gan paper as one that people should be reading yeah so the five that i mentioned then were stochastic variational inference by um, Hoffman, Wang, Blei, and Paisley. And I think that that is, that's a really, to me, that's been a massively important method. So that's sort of, people are using it very widely now. I think that was a a good call because it's a way of doing approximate Bayesian inference for probabilistic models with potentially billions of data. And actually, I think going back to that time, we organized a, a workshop at NeurIPS, I think the year when Mark Zuckerberg turned up. Probably was 2013. Yeah, we had like uh, Max Welling and uh, as well because the next paper is austerity in MCMC land, cutting the Metropolis Hastings budget by Karatikara, Chen, and Welling. But I think I could also have mentioned papers by Max and Yuai-Tay in that space. These approaches, so so these these two papers are sort of related. The, the first one is about how you're scaling up variational inference for very, very large data. And I think in particular, David Blythe had an interest in doing that for sort of these sort of language models like LDA and so on and so forth. And I think we're seeing a comeback a little bit for those types of models in the Bayesian nonparametrics workshop at last year's. Europe's was was a was a big workshop, which unfortunately I couldn't attend. Uh, I'd like to have been there, but lots of people mentioned it to me as a very interesting, exciting workshop. And I guess that the for me, the stochastic variational inference methods were very important for a paper um, that James Hensman, Nicolo Fusi, and I did for scaling up Gaussian processes. And even that paper that is just leveraging the method in the domain of Gaussian processes is is one of the papers that I've had that's become very highly cited in the last few years, which shows <laughs> you know, how important that method is overall because our paper was just, yeah, and this is how you do it in the context of Gaussian processes. I think it's sort of also things like these doubly stochastic methods now where people are doing um, integrations within the stochastic variational inference by sample-based methods as well. Really important area that I, I think was a very interesting choice. And the Max Welling paper is similar, but for sampling-based algorithms, so trying to scale up sampling algorithms. And I've actually lost track of this field, but you know I, I see side glances. of. I think that's really influencing statistics as well. The thing that I was very taken with, I saw a talk by Max, I think one of the first papers where he introduced this, where he sort of said, well, with sampling algorithms, we typically look to have them bias-free. But we, if we have a limited computational budget, then we don't get to run to the infinite limit where the algorithm becomes unbiased. Given a limited computational budget, we should be looking to get the best performance from the algorithm in the time we have available. Because we know, so So bias-free means that if I, if I run this thing forever, I will eventually recover the ground truth. So people try and spend a lot of time with MCMC algorithms proving that that's the case. Interestingly, for variational inference, you you can't prove that it's the case. You know, you you have a limited family of approximations. There's no sense that you can run them forever and get the truth. But what I really liked about Max and UI's work in this space is they're sort of effectively saying, and and their collaborators, they're saying, well, if I'm going to be limited computational budget, then instead of uh, having an algorithm that converges towards the truth, I just want, want the best possible answer in a given amount of time. So that meant that they start looking at minimizing variance in the sampler. So error overall can be decomposed into these two terms, bias and variance. Bias being because there's a mismatch, there's you're oversimplifying the situation, and variance being because you haven't seen enough data for your model to um, sort of accurately approximate the ground truth. So variance tends to be high when you've taken only a few samples. And the bias term only comes in once... Variance tends to dominate in that regime. So so what they did is start looking at algorithms where you're trying to reduce the variance. I I think that that work as well is is appearing a lot in, uh, I'm not saying it's directly descended from that, but you also see that around stochastic gradient descent algorithms where people are looking at um, variance minimization for gradient estimation. So actually, back in that time, I don't think we were, we had such a clear-sighted view of stochastic gradient descent in terms of thinking, well, we're really just trying to estimate gradients in a sampling-based way. I mean, maybe some some people, I'm sure, did, but now it's very widespread and there's a lot of effort put into variance reduction around these algorithms, uh, and that's sort of related. But the MCMC work was the sort of place where I saw that put most succinctly, and, and there's a lot of derivative works from that. I think that that's also... So each of these papers, is, in some sense, leading to a field that on its own is almost... <laughs> too large to follow
0: nice so so taking a look at these papers and you said you may gave this advice like five years ago you recommended these and then you can sort of maybe even track these five influential papers to whole new areas of exploration that people are super jazzed about today where we have three to four hundred papers coming out a month
1: yeah and i guess the field was smaller then And and identifying which papers. But, you know, these. I mean, the next paper, it's still, this this field's smaller. And I don't know if it's an approximation I'm doing to uh, the wider field to try and track what's going on. But I do find myself coming back to the same people again and again. And one thing I find interesting about, I mean, this, this is an old blog post I wrote, it's 23rd of January 2014, is... That David Devineau was there that night, and at the time, David was, I think, a not yet graduated PhD student who was, you know, known about. I sort of knew he was really bright, and now I would say he's someone that, in that five years of time, has joined that group of people. I mean, I don't, I haven't even bothered to mention like his recent Europe's paper because it's so widely mentioned. Like uh, I've seen YouTube vloggers talking about it, you know, with like animations and all sorts. The differential equation, neural neural ODEs, I think. So, so it's true, but there's there's certain people, and 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 I guess the difficulty is that number of people is probably increasing. Will difficult to follow everything that they're doing. The net, the third paper on the list was the practical Bayesian optimization of machine learning algorithms by Snook, Larochelle, and Adams, and I think that that's there's a whole field of AutoML now that has its own workshops and conferences that sit on that. I mean, they they weren't. They weren't perhaps the first person to point out you could do that. I'm not sure whether they were, maybe in the context of neural networks, but they did it so well. And, um, you know, in retrospect, their paper was so nice because it's sort of, it's one of those, oh, obvious in retrospect, bang, massive field formed around the idea and and all sorts of other challenges being explored. But I chose that as a sort of example of a a wider field, um, which is sort of probabilistic numerics or... um, something my team focuses on a lot, uncertainty quantification. And I think that that AutoML, I think, is perhaps the most um, public success of that. But to a large extent, all you're talking about in AutoML is I've got a very slow to operate computer process, which has some parameters that I want to optimize, right? And if you view it like that, the thing's much bigger than just doing machine learning. And that's something my team ends up doing a lot on. The Colonel Bayes rule by um, Fukumizu, Song, and Gretton. I feel very lucky. That's another thing. Arthur is one of these people. He thinks in a totally different way to how I think about uh, machine learning.
0: And that's Arthur Gretton.
1: Arthur Gretton. Yes. Thank you. And for that reason, I kind of... Whenever I speak to him, my mind is somehow distorted and expanded because he he does such interesting things. He's one of these examples of someone who, and I'm I mentioning the authors who I I mean these are these are great collaborations with other people, but but Arthur's the one that sort of uh, has spoken to me most about the Colonel Bayes' rule work, but this sort of pushing probabilities through reproducing Colonel Hilbert spaces. It, it's not that there's an earlier paper, um, but the um, MMD work by Arthur and I think Alex Smoller and Bernard Schulkopf on that. It, it, a lot of this goes back to that. And that's being used in GANs for measuring either their quality or fitting of GANs. And there was a great talk, which I'm sure there's video of from Arthur a tutorial on uh, MMD and integral probability measures, sort of how you measure distance between functions by mapping them into reproducing kernel Hilbert spaces. What I like about what I really like uh, is characteristic of Arthur's work is the there's he digs up these different alternative mathematical imp- interpretations for what he's doing. In particular, like he he will. I don't know how he does it. I should check with him how he does it. But he clearly has an idea. Starts digging into something. I I feel I have a tendency once I've worked out the idea and it's done. I sort of like that's it. But with Arthur, he just sort of goes deeper and broader. I mean, mining into the other areas that it's related to. And 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 this paper is an example of that strand of work that we're seeing being widely used for integral probability measures and measuring the distance between distributions. Um, as I say, a great tutorial from Arthur on the integral probability measures and MMD at uh, MLSS from this year. And then the, the fifth paper was the ImageNet paper, which I find fascinating because I see it as the trigger point for the sort of the, the modern AI revolution. What I think people have almost forgotten already is before that paper, we didn't talk about what we were doing as AI. Well, Yoshua Bengio maybe did once at Europe's, but the rest of us sort of didn't. And AI was sort of not really something you mentioned. I'm I'm still, you know, maybe I'd prefer to be in that world in some senses because I think that AI has a particular connotation with the public that leads to a lot of misunderstanding. But but maybe that's sort of panning out in a Positive way because what I see is is I have a lot of concerns about the public debate, but I see the quality of it improving in large aspects. But the ImageNet paper, what was so impressive about that, and I think that people forget now, the difficulty of doing this work by then, is uh, that Alex Krizhevsky. My understanding is, and I I spoke to Ilya once about this, so, so I hope I've got this right. So Ilya was super excited about this. So Ilya and Alex and, and Jeff Hinton, Jeff, Jeff Hinton got these GPUs into Toronto. And I remember having a conversation with him when he visited Manchester once um, with Steve Ferber and him. And Steve Ferber is uh, one of the creators of the ARM processor. And I was trying to get them to connect because I knew that Jeff was uh, in, interested in these deep neural networks. At the time, Boltzmann machines that required high interprocessor bandwidth. And Steve Ferber had built a machine called Spinnaker. I thought was appropriate for that. But unfortunately, I, I brought them together a little bit too late because uh, Jeff had already had GPUs delivered. And and I remember, I, I never made the connection at the time, but I remember him enthusing about GPUs and being a little bit disappointed that Steve Ferber and Jeff didn't hit it off more around Spinnaker and its potential because I knew that computation was a massive challenge, more for the Boltzmann machine work that was going on. And I just thought that, that this was a really good match. Steve Ferber, is, um, he's a computer scientist, professor at Manchester. He designed the BBC Acorn computer and designed the first ARM processor. So he's like the godfather of, with with uh, uh, Roger Wilson, uh, who worked very closely with him, Sophie Wilson, I should say, with Sophie Wilson, who worked very closely with him. He designed both these machines and they built this risk processor um, by reading up on a Berkeley grad course together. Um, and that's the processor that's in all our mobile phones today. And uh, Steve had this project Spinnaker, which was interconnecting a lot of these ARM risk processors. But I've I've taken a sidetrack. But the the key story there is that Jeff had already bought these GPUs. And and unbeknownst to me at that time, well, at some point, I don't know when, Alex Krivsevsky turned up and could actually program these things. And Ilya was convinced about the merits of these convolution neural networks. And that's my understanding. There's probably lots of variations on the story and they end up implementing and deploying on ImageNet, which was, was an extremely difficult, uh, I remember checking with Ilya and I can't remember it. it's like months, months it took to implement this, like uh, potentially best part of the year to actually get the code operational. And that was of course, what's launched the modern revolution in machine learning, well in, or in AI driven by this paper. And, you know, it wasn't like trying to do these things today, you know, you, however, whatever that figure is, let's say it's six months conservatively, it took them to implement it. You sort of needed, I don't know if you have met Ilya, but he's a sort of passionate person with a, a very driven belief in what he's doing, you know, he's, and Alex with this technical expertise, extremely important in these, And these, and Jeff, of course. You know, it, it's an interesting question: how long it would have taken to for that to all come together had had they not done that. And but I, I guess the paper itself is perhaps mentioned less nowadays than um, than, than it was uh, four or five years ago. But yeah, there are moments when something big has happened in the community, and uh, and that's definitely one of them.
0: Do you think we'll see another ImageNet moment for a different sort of human level task? Where do you think we'll see that again? Will we? Or
1: I, I don't know. Um,
0: is there a place where we're having intractable problems that could be so so changed by just like compute power, or you know, bringing in a bringing in a new a new model, or a fu- like a fundamental shift?
1: I, I think that we're in this this interesting post innovation period where you're still digesting the implications of that large breakthrough. I mean. Jan LeCun is f- fond of saying that GANs is, is the other sort of major thing. And I, I think that that is also, that's something I think that I wouldn't have predicted since over the last five years, that we were going to be able to simulate images with that higher quality and, and and that approach of adversarial learning. You know, what I love about it is, so actually, again, at the MLSS, Sebastian Novitsin was a uh, Talking about GANs and, and doing mathematical analysis of the objective functions, it's these um, f divergences. I think that that's that's what I love about this field is that um, yes, there's a lot of stuff that's quite hard to pick out, pick through because there's you know little changes being made that seem to have some, but there's this core of very interesting and broad, but but deep theoretical thinkers, Sebastian being one in this case, who I think was, I, I don't follow Gans closely, but um, my understanding is one of the first to point out the connection with these uh, F divergences, which have an interesting and orthogonal relation to these integral probability measures. My my lesson learned is never say never because, you know, the creativity is such and the talent coming into the field is, is just very impressive things happen. Generation from people who aren't even in my direct sphere of those people that I know personally. You know, I I think it it was a development that could occur because of this confluence of very large amounts of data and suddenly the ability to do compute. But even then, it required all this work to actually get the implementation done. It it required faith. People talk about faith in science. But, you know, to me, it it requires sort of faith. As I say, I think we're still digesting the implications of that and all the amazing things you can do just having that tool set around, say, you know, translation or speech recognition or image recognition. And and one thing I learned, I was speaking with a colleague once and I was I was pushing for, oh wow, we but we need to, there's all this stuff that these models can't do. And their response was yes, but look at all the things that are now possible. And that's something in academia that um yes because you're not developing production systems and it's just so true that when you suddenly give have have basic human sensory capabilities around uh, sight and sound and we're kind of seeing the consequences of that in a lot of the new exciting apps that are emerging you know as I'm fond of saying I see that as greenfield innovation because it's things that didn't exist before and I think that the To me, also the brownfield innovation, how do you really deploy this in the real world? Because as you start to get a very complex decision-making system, we're a long way, I think, from seeing anything as solved there. I I would say that the thing that I'm very interested in personally, and I don't see a lot being written about, maybe it's being written about but in terms I'm not familiar with, but what I get increasingly convinced of is what humans are quite good at at the low level is some form of automated abstraction. So... We're we're seeing things going on and we distill them into concepts and we're doing that kind of by intuition, honed intuition. Even anyone who is doing a lot of advanced maths over time will find they start having this ability to sort of see what the answer is going to be. It's great because it really impresses PhD students that you can do this complex maths in one line. I remember Jeff Jeff Hinton uh, talking about T-SNE once um with, with Lawrence Van der Martens. So uh Lawrence Van der Martens and Jeff tells this story. You'd have to check with Lawrence whether it's true, but but it's it's a good story. So uh so I'll retell Jeff's version. It's sort of like uh that that Lawrence wrote down the sort of objective function and and Jeff guessed what the gradients were going to be and then Lawrence went away and derived them uh and uh, Jeff was right. Now it is, I mean, Jeff is, Jeff is really like, Jeff's above and beyond with a lot of these things actually, but, uh, but everyone over time develops some intuition and it's that level of honed intuition that I think allows you to do these things that look very, very insightful because you have this sort of sensible abstraction of the field that is, um, proven over time to have been effective because when it wasn't effective, you, you tried the wrong type of algorithm and then you learned painfully that that wasn't going to work. So over time, you sort of build up this ability in any area you specialize in. Now, that that nature of that abstraction, I think then we consciously have this sort of higher level reasoning where we're operating on those abstract concepts that we've honed over time. And then we sort of think, oh, isn't conscious reasoning great? Well, no, not really. Logic, all that sort of stuff. You know, I think what's really amazing is the subconscious stuff. There's something perhaps between conscious thinking and a bit distance from the basic sort of things like. I mean, you, you could describe what is an object. He also has this element to it, but this is more conceptual abstraction. And and that to me is fascinating how we're doing that. And and to what extent is that um, programmed in to our wiring and to what extent, I mean, it must be very plastic because I, I sort of, humans in history, when they were hunter gathering, never had to worry about integral probability measures it would have been great it would, uh, allow me to just check uh this ibox versus or ibex i don't know some animal against that one see if it's the same animal with an integral probability measure you know no you know they just uh but somehow now we we can do this work or arthur can you know the arthurs of the world there are humans that can do that sort of intuitive thinking uh, around those things and i find that maybe that's also related to everyone's obsessed with meta learning at the moment aren't they it's sort of like and and i think that there's some elements of of that in there but it's meta learning at some sort of abstract level that i've learnt a capability to and maybe that's what i really personally dislike the term general intelligence i just think you know Let's not define something and then let's 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 make it let's put general in front of it as well. Because <laughs> yeah, you know right,
0: exactly. Let's let's get an empty box, label it, and then try to put stuff in there and then like put another label on top of that first label. Yeah, super great.
1: So and when people sort of misunderstand it, then we'll we use the word general to clarify that we don't mean we don't mean the specific thing they were saying. We mean general intelligence. Yeah, it's so something that people don't have a good definition for. The right solution, instead of getting more specific, is to put the word general in front. Anyway. But, you know, there is a sort of notion at the heart there that, that humans are doing some pretty impressive stuff. And, and you know, the, I, I wonder if that type of thing is at the heart of it. And I suspect... You know, uh, I I haven't been following the AlphaZero work as deeply as many others, but, you know, I think that that type of work is targeted and that sort of thing. But personally, I am much more interested in learning in the real world. I I don't see, I think that you, it's a bit of a dead end to do so much in the simulated world because everything is, is too within your control. But yes, it's probably a good domain to sort of start looking at, am I extracting general concepts about how games work across go and chess if you can do the model interpretation yeah
0: but these five papers the so so not a New Yorker short story but still a really interesting place to gather information about why the field has been shaped into the way that it is today and going back and reading those sounds like it would be a really great place to to start building your your own intuitions about these things and being able to I mean even just looking at the author list would be super informative
1: absolutely yeah and i think i should say for me that's a personal narrative and I, lots of other people would have different narratives of how they ended up here and i think that that's one thing you know there is it's very subjective what's going on in science i know we'd like it to be objective but that's my personal narrative and there, there are many other things that wove into those papers that led to the ideas we spoke about it afterwards
0: yeah absolutely Well, we will have a link to Neil's five tapers for Mike Tipping on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. And if you have five papers for Mike Tipping, either from five years ago or from today, we would love to hear about them. You can email us at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com or tweet at us at T-L-K-N-G-M-C-H-N-S. What's your narrative? So our listener question this week is about a new initiative, the American AI initiative, which was announced earlier this week. And I guess that that makes it the A-A-I-I, if you're going to use full acronyms. This was a program that was announced earlier this week in in early February 2019, and it's focusing on research development, freeing resources, making federal American uh, data available algorithms, and other processing power making available to researchers, though that seems like a very super general thing to say, ethical standards, automation, and international outreach. Uh, And our listener question was basically, what do you guys think of the American AI initiative? Which feels itself like a very big question. So to me, Neil, I mean, this seems really interesting. It doesn't have a whole lot to say about funding specifically for AI in the United States. But it also feels a little bit like the U.S. is kind of late to the party. Like, I feel like CIFAR and the Canadian initiatives are sort of the granddaddy of this. And we've seen um, lots of other national interests. China, I think, being very well formed and well well talked about, but also like Prairie and Ellis and the Turing and, and all sorts of these sort of federal movements towards creating a national initiative around artificial intelligence and it just feels like this is the u.s playing catch-up to me i mean at least at first blush
1: yeah i that's an interesting notion for the u.s to be trying to play catch-up in ai I'm um, uh, yeah i don't know is it so that's the double a i double i versus the triple ai and then you know these things are AI, hi, yeah. So many A's
0: and I's, you guys. Oh, no. We're just not going to be making like, ah, noises at conferences at each other.
1: I, I'm curious. Um, so it's, as you say, it's no new funding, but it's about, I guess, these initiatives are about trying to sort of focus attention, which can be a cheap thing to do if you don't include any new funding. It also can be a dangerous thing to do because, you know, everyone basically then suddenly has to explain why their grant is sort of AI. And we're not even clear about what AI is anymore because there's classical AI, there's modern AI. You know, my my general sense is that it will all end in tears to some extent. Oh, no. Oh, no. (laughs) But mainly because a phenomena I've seen sort of occurring um, in the UK landscape is some of the very best institutions in this space are starting to get lost in the noise and the hype of you know the widespread everyone has to say that they're doing AI. And, and you can't overnight go from zero to hero in terms of capability, but people will spin narratives as to why that has become the case. And we're starting to see those narratives um, also because, of course, there's a sense the founding councils, oh, it shouldn't go to the usual suspects. So... I don't know. I mean it it's it, it I guess it's a bit of wait and see for a lot of these things. If 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 there is a problem, I don't personally feel the US has a major problem with its AI funding.
0: We had that big DARPA announcement a couple of months ago. So like the funding patterns in the US seem to be kind of continuing in the way that they always have, but maybe not receiving the sort of policy and regulatory attention that other groups are getting in in sort of a national strategy level.
1: So that's interesting if it's more targeted, at the policy and regulatory, but I mean, there's issues sort of there as well. So, so the Alan Turing Institute is supposedly an Institute for data science, but it was recommended that it should take on a policy role by the whole Presenti report, but it's a sort of payment only membership model. So do for the universities that are in it, you have to pay money to sort of choice. So are we restricting expertise to, or are there brokerage of expertise? It's, I mean, it's sort of not surprising because people are trying to react to a fast-moving, what appears to be, and certainly I think is, one would argue, a fast-moving technological landscape.
0: So, yeah, so that's an interesting question. How much is this actually forward movement and how much is this, oh my gosh, we have to say something that has AI in it?
1: And in fact, it's interesting, the Ellis Initiative specifically chose to not use AI in the term. And I think that that's... uh, you know, we, um, we spoke about this before, you know, there's, uh, what does sort of AI mean? It's such a broad casual term. So, but on on the positive side, it gets public attention, right? So I spend a lot of, it's interesting, um, talk I was attending recently on supply chain was mentioning containerization, a containerization in supply chain. And, uh, the effect it had on global shipping, not because it reduces so much, is my understanding, the cost of shipping itself, but it, it basically standardizes things and tracking and distribution of parcels. And, and shipping overall shipping costs for items have dropped dramatically, uh, triggering uh, a global economy. Uh, there's an interesting snippet that uh, you can buy Alaskan prawns in, say, uh, st- Washington state that were actually our product of China. You can look this up. This is a, and they're a product of China because they're fished in Alaska. Then they're shipped to China for deshelling, and then shipped back to Washington. And the reason that's efficient is because the cost of the logistics is so low relative to the cost of labour. And and this is also true for Scotland. So you can read articles about um, Scottish fishermen being upset about, uh, say, prawns being shipped to China and and back. I find that quite mind-boggling, and it's sort of it's interesting. There's actually a book about it that I haven't read. We'll get the book in the in the link about what effect that this has had. Now, the interesting thing is, still today in a supply chain conference, I don't see many people shipping up and talking about the ethics of supply chain or anything else. Now, in some sense, uh, one could argue that uh, what we're seeing around AI is the supply chain of information. I think that it's in that sense, the, the use of the term AI to draw public attention and ensure we have a debate as we're developing it is probably a, a broadly positive thing, as long as it doesn't get too knee-jerk and reactionary and uh, lost in the science fiction rather than the reality of what's going on. But it just... it. It strikes me again and again that we miss the major things that affect us. The uh, other one, so Stuart Russell was once talking about um, the nuclear industry, and you know, and uh, he he likes to draw a parallel between the nuclear industry and the AI singularity, which I think is quite a dangerous parallel. But the reason it's effective is because people have a very vivid sense of the nuclear industry as a dangerous thing around radioactivity.
0: But but that's that's fascinating because also I think people's working model mental working mental model of the nuclear industry is like Chernobyl and like bikini atoll testing and like things like that and stuff exploding and but maybe doesn't have a whole lot to do with the reality of nuclear power in the world today.
1: Well, I think in terms of uh you know what Stuart says about the singularity, I think probably. It's, uh, he's trying to get that to resonate. But this sort of counterpoint I made once um, to him, I mean, my father worked uh, in the early, when he was in his mid-twenties, he worked uh, on a nuclear power plant in Traviere doing the safety systems, like as a young control engineer. But he died of asbestos. The number of people that have died of asbestos, if you start looking it up, is horrific. And they knew about it since, you know, the evidence is there's massive covers up, about how and when they knew about it. So by the time he was starting his working career in the sixties, they should and could have got rid of all asbestos in all boilers. That's because it's it's a less vivid, vivid thing. And I, I think that the problem with making these things very vivid and making people panic about them is you actually miss the underlying phenomena, which is the thing that's really killing people. I mean, actually, when he was in uh, he was in hospital in Sheffield, there were many working class men of his age who'd worked in boilers who were dying from mesothelioma you know um asbestos so there's this real danger i think of, of going for these very vivid ideas but i i feel that we're steering away from that i hope i i have sort of sensed that over the last sort of 12 months have been less more reality and more focus on i think some of the serious debates around data so with uh, Sylvie Delacroix and I published a paper, uh, which is the technical detail behind data trust. This suggestion I made back in 2016, which somehow found its way in—well, uh, it found its way into the UK Hall Presentee report. But unfortunately, they didn't uh, refer to the specific idea, so it's sort of a bit general. So, uh, Sylvia Delacroix and I were writing a paper about that. I mean, and that's gained a lot of interest, and and is being talked about very seriously at the right levels, which I find. Um, a bit more reassuring. I mean, there are certainly issues around th- that we need to to look at, but I, I think that there's this danger with AI as a term, eh, the whole terminated debate, but I think that's getting better. I, I don't know what's your feeling. You're, you're very in this field, so actually, I should ask you more about that than me.
0: Yeah. So, so I I think that there is, I think that it's getting better because there is more public interest. I haven't felt like I've seen a, a shift away from sort of the hype, but at least there's more underneath the hype. Like if you, you, you can dive further in the water column now of information instead of just being sort of this shallow pond of, oh my God, the Terminator, there are actually these conversations going on that, that you could get into, but the Terminator chunk at the top is so like thick and sometimes, and, and like sometimes rubbery. Uh, That that you can't get through. And I think the thing that we see there is there are, we still see a displacement around headlines and more and more we're seeing a continuation and sort of like an inflation around the pictures that we use to represent these conversations and more and more with digital journalism, the picture is what you're going to get to attract someone to do a click through to the actual article but if we are seeing that that female robot that's like cut off from the clavicles up with her head totally twisted around on like 90% of the articles that are talking about what you know the latest gans research is i think it's going to be hard to get through that but the fact that there's more in-depth information in the public conversation gives me great hope but i feel like our problem still persists. I think we're going to see something change in the next couple of years as people get smarter about their own data privacy information, but the thing that worries me is are we going to have to have a Chernobyl or have everybody, you know, understand what the word mesothelioma means before people actually get through that like first layer of conversation. So, yeah, I guess we're just going to have to see, but it's it's fascinating. I mean, the, the main c- problem in in all of these conversations is a communication one. And can we sidestep the communication problem in this like industrial revolution and domestication of technology in a way where we can avoid hurting people?
1: But I think that's a great point. And what you're making me realize is over the last year, it may just be that I cut myself off more and more from some of these... Uh sources where i would have been seeing this stuff due to getting tired of it and that's kind of a worrying thing i can't i can't be sure cuz i definitely have taken actions to sort of uh reduce explicit actions to reduce the amount of stuff like that i see so yeah that's a concern because and i i do worry that the 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 possibility i think when we first started the debate there was a really good bridge between those that wanted to talk about ai from a policy perspective and those that were working on it on a technical perspective but the the policy field itself as i think we've talked about on previous episodes has become such a big thing in itself that, that there's a potential for it to become detached i think the very best people you know are still very well calibrated in what they're saying
0: yeah. And I think it's going to take things like the Ellis Society, right? You know, calling itself the European Laboratory for Learning and Intelligent Systems, right? Like, and, and that Mike Jordan article that was really cool, the Medium post where he like actually spoke from his perspective about why the language needs to shift. I think it's going to take practitioners opening themselves up to the public in a way that's accessible to really see a change.
1: But I mean, it's not clear that this is what this is, because it's an initiative, which which is the sort of word you use when you don't know what the thing is you're doing. But I think that definitely one of the roles of Ellis in Europe is to provide that type of information. But and so what is the um, I mean, is it the uh, National Academy of Sciences in the US that should be stepping up or the there's the. Academy of Sciences and the Arts as well, isn't there? There's there's a couple of national academies in the US. That, but which of these academies should be amplifying the voice of the Mike Jordans and the Rodney Brooks of this world, who are painting a very sober, realistic, well calibrated picture of what's possible, but are sometimes drowned out by the issues you mentioned.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it's the American Academy of Arts and Sciences that has been sort of like most involved with these kinds of conversations. But yeah, is we're not seeing as large a public conversation around it. And, and that, you know, if they were to play the same part that the Royal Society and and other sort of amplification groups for other nationalities have done, then yeah, we might see a little more information and a little more well-reasoned conversation around this.
1: I'm totally biased, but I think the Royal Society has done an amazing job on that. And one of the things I've really learned through working with them on that process is the importance of well-trained researchers, the people that translate the mutterings. Because so, So doing one of these Royal Society experiences is a little bit like, I mean, this is a simplification but you know those evenings uh, well imagine you go to a pub but there's not much beer not until you finish discussing but you discuss all these things you get these issues we have a very interesting conversation right and then the next time you turn up someone's written that up as a sort of report on what you said because there were people there listening who were expert and it's an accurate representation of the conversation now that is so alien to academics because we just have these pub-like conversations all the time about how the world should be and then no one writes it down and no one does anything about it. And it's just, yeah, and uh, the note-taking, but also the creation of the report, and people like uh, Jess Montgomery, who was the lead on that, um, but others like Frank Fourniel in in the Royal Society team, I mean, their role was so important. And I've realized that having worked with other reports since where we don't have that level of professional science policy advisor, science policy researcher, Involved, it sort of feels like you you keep taking two steps forward and one and three quarter steps backwards, you know, because no one really has the time out of those that were discussing or, or the skills. It's a it's a really important skill. So it would be great if the American Academy of Science and Arts, I, I think they already they certainly hosted meetings, and I don't know the scene there. It was able to provide that role more. I'm guessing this initiative won't do that.
0: So so we have to ask other people to sort of watch what they do and take notes, right?
1: So Yeah. And unfortunately, if, if those people aren't vested in the outcome and have a long term program associated with it, then then it won't be as high quality. And as I say, I've been in reports where those people weren't around and the end result, I feel, wasn't as representative as, as it could have been. Yeah, I mean, th- so there's a number of different roles these initiatives could play. It's, it's not 100% clear to me what this initiative is playing at the moment, um, apart from the, yes, we also, yes, we also care we care too. I mean, a, a good, an interesting question might be, what was the brain initiative that the uh, Obama administration launched in response to um, the the big brain in Europe or whatever it was called? There was some, there was some sort of mimicking of,
0: yeah. Whatever happened to that thing that we can't remember the name of, right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So uh, maybe it's really functional and doing some great things, and I hope it is because there's great neuroscientists and I hope that they're all benefiting from it. But that would probably so that's that's what we should have checked beforehand is you know where that is and what's that doing because um, that might give some lessons on on where this one might go. Absolutely.
0: Well, if you have any notes on how you see the American Artificial Intelligence Initiative impacting your life or work, or, or even any predictions on how you might see that come to be, or questions for Talking Machines. You can reach us at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com or tweet at us at T-L-K-N-G-M-C-H-N-S. This week's guest on Talking Machines is Owen O'Mahony, and he's a manager of matching science at Uber. And uh, full disclosure, I got to meet Owen when we were working on a project together for Uber, explaining the fundamentals of the research that they're doing for a lay audience. And when we sat down, when we got a chance to talk, I asked him the first question that we ask all of our guests, how did you get where you are?
2: I grew up in Ireland in a small country town called Ismore end of high school, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Uh, I'd always liked computers, so I studied computer science in University College Cork, or UCC. It was incredibly exciting because it was the first time I really started studying a subject I was super engaged in. Mm. I was like, wow, this is really cool. This stuff is so powerful. There's so much I can do. I was lucky enough to get an internship in a research lab there called the Cork Constraint Computation Center under now Professor Barry O'Sullivan. At Mm -hmm. the time, he was a lecturer I worked there right through my undergrad and did a lot of work about how to solve large combinatorial optimization problems uh, in practice. So, we did some work on algorithm portfolio design, using some machine learning to do it, optimization problems for cancer therapy, a whole host of different stuff. So, I was really bitten by the bug of solving these super difficult problems. Post that, I did a PhD in computer science at, at Cornell which was uh, an amazing experience. First winter was a bit shocking in Ithaca. <laughs> and there I worked with uh, Professor David Schmoyz, uh, And I was lucky enough to to start working at the last couple of years of my PhD on bike sharing systems, specifically mm. City Bike in New York. So nice. I started working with them shortly after they launched, solving problems about more thinking about how to use algorithms, machine learning, analytics to help run their operations. Mm. And that was incredibly exciting because it... it married this interesting math and computer science and algorithms with this real-world application. It was super cool to do some work, go talk to the team in the city, put it into practice, and then see it fail or succeed in, in the real world. Oh, my uh, There was something tangible about it that was super appealing. Talk about direct feedback. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, feeling the heat when friends couldn't get a bike or couldn't put their bike back into the system, getting texts of photos of emptied and full bike sharing racks. So following up on that, I was trying to figure out what did I want to do post-grad school? Did mm. I want to go into academia, take a research position, work for a tech company? I was lucky enough to have met a bunch of Uber people uh, mm-hmm. through my work in bike sharing. Mm-hmm. And I was finishing up thinking about an academic life, went as far as writing a research statement about what that might look like. Wow. And once I really sat down and thought about, okay, what type of stuff am I excited about? What do I want to do? Yeah. I was like, this is what I would do at Uber. I should totally just go there. <laughs> so nice. So I joined in, in uh, mid-2015, and it was a really exciting time because... Uber was becoming more mature, a lot of the systems were stable, there was an incredible amount of growth going on, and really that was a point that Uber kicked off growth in its marketplace team, and really tried to make the system ever more efficient, ever more reliable, and really bring to bear some interesting science and math.
0: So tell me about that research statement that you wrote. Are you asking the questions now that you expected to be asking if you had just sort of continued in academic research? That's a great question. I think a lot of what I've learned over the past couple of years at Uber
2: is really about the physical nature of the problem Mm. and and thinking more holistically about not just solving an interesting algorithmic problem, but thinking about how you bring that to bear into a product that exists in the real world. Mm. There's many examples here of times when you have interesting algorithmic work, but unless you really think about how is this going to impact the real world how are users of this, real humans, riders and drivers going to experience something like this? that's a whole different dimension that I now find fascinating, and I never would have thought about coming from an academic setting.
0: Nice. And you, you have sort of the, at Uber here, you have sort of the mother load of all variables, because you're dealing with real world and real time information. So so tell me about, you said you were drawn to difficult problems. Tell me about how you're finding working with data with, with so many variables.
2: So as well as being real world and, and real time, there are real people. there. <laughs> (laughs) Humans underpinning (laughs) every transaction at Uber. We have riders (laughs) and drivers, drivers wanting to earn in our platform, riders looking for reliable transport. So, this creates an incredible amount of complexity. Mm -hmm. There's countless variables, different things going on. But it's exciting because we can take that, really think hard about how to make our existing systems better, what might make improvements, and then work algorithmically, work with product managers, user researchers, design. Uh, our operations team, and bring that to bear in the real world. A concrete example I'm really proud of is our work on Express Pool. Mm. So for those of you who don't know, Express Pool is a shared rides product, which means we have multiple people in the car to try and share the the price of the ride. On Express Pool, we have our riders wait for a little bit of time and also walk. Mm. So we used to have Uber Pool, and uh, people would sometimes have bad experiences because to pick another rider up, the driver might have to take a lot of left turns, go down one ways. It could get complicated. So by walking, we can have our riders walk to meet the car, and we can have much more streamlined routes. Uh, that creates a ton of efficiency in the system, which we can give back to our riders in the form of lower prices, and makes a better experience for everyone. Now, this seems like a relatively simple product. But there's an incredible amount of complexity underpinning it. Mm. If you look at this across an entire system, we run a batch matching system with uh-huh. Uber, where we gather up requests, wait a, sh- a short amount of time, and think about solving globally for the network. On Express Pool, there are millions of potential routes we could send cars, and it's been really interesting to work on algorithms and back-end systems that can solve that efficiently and create a great experience for riders and drivers.
0: Nice. Fantastic. And tell me, um, let me take one sort of step back. Tell me about your team. Tell me about sort of the larger questions that you're asking, and then I'd love to return to to the specific projects that you're working on.
2: Sure. So I run the matching data science team at Uber. And this is the team that's responsible for all of the online algorithms that connect riders and drivers in our marketplace. Mm. So if you push a button to request a ride, we figure out what driver to offer that trip to. And if you take a shared rides product like a Pool or Express Pool, we figure out what other riders we might want to have to share the car with you. So it's a lot of online algorithms figuring out how to run these systems efficiently in a short amount of computation.
0: Nice. So let's let's return to the the express pool question. So you are essentially asking the real world variable to wait until you can collect enough data to have sort of a dense field to explore
2: pretty much. So what makes matching difficult to Uber is it's an online problem. The yeah. decisions we make right now impact what we can do in the future. So if we can ask our riders to wait a little while, we can actually have much more information to make decisions over. So as opposed to having to take a snapshot decision about what match to make, we can wait a while, see whether requests are in the system, and really think about solving across this larger number of requests to have much more efficient routes and a better experience. Thanks. So it's a way of us asking the riders to change their behavior slightly and us being able to do more with that information and give uh, that efficiency back to them in the form of lower prices and and better routes.
0: So do you find when you are, because you have this sort of really interesting loop, right, where you're taking real world data, you're, you're analyzing it, and then you are taking a decision and feeding that back into the real world to change a behavior. Do you find that it's a behavior change that really you're asking people to engage in to optimize?
2: That's a great question. There's a couple of ways of doing it. You can ask for riders and drivers to change their behavior slightly Mm. in in a way, in a more cooperative for the whole system. We can also employ things like machine learning to peek into the future, Mm. uh, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So with Express Pool, we gain value on the waiting time because we have more information. And with more information, we can make better matches and just better decisions in its online environment. We can also leverage machine learning to predict what the future might look like. Maybe if we know what requests and uh, drivers might look like in... uh, two minutes we can make much better matching decisions so we can hybridize across both of these. That's what's exciting is that some of it can be gained by changing experience or different uh, interfaces on our rider and driver apps, but also some of it can be done with interesting algorithmic techniques.
0: Nice, so is your team focused on the sort of immediate request algorithms or are you looking at larger trends across time to help plan out, I don't know, when surge is happening or when you might need to do other interventions? Tell me about the sort of larger scale questions you're asking. So
2: we're mainly focused on the short term. Mm -hmm. Uh, When people request rides, how can we best match uh, riders and drivers together? to have as efficient and as reliable a system as possible.
0: Nice. So what do you think the next question is? You've you've engaged in this really interesting system of sort of behavioral change to optimize for certain things and and trying to look at short-term predictions. What's the next thing that's really exciting you right now?
2: So I think there's some really interesting work to be done with how we hybridize techniques from machine learning and optimization. Mm. So... The problems we solved are incredibly structured from a combinatorial point of view. Mm-hmm. And we're solving things like bipartite graph matching for UberX and figuring out how to use machine learning to predict what might happen in the future. And then taking these estimates and optimizing over them is really interesting. We're solving this complex online problem in a stochastic world and You can use machine learning and prediction to get a sense of what the future looks like. Right. But you're never going to be certain. There's always going to be some inherent stochasticity or uncertainty in your predictions. And if you think about how to optimize over that, it becomes really, really difficult. Yeah. You have this you know no longer a nice, clean, bipartite graph matching problem. You have this really gnarly, stochastic Sticky. optimization problem. So we're really thinking about how do, we, how do we handle this? How do we handle optimizing under uncertainty? What are we maximizing for in these scenarios? And there's some really interesting intellectual questions about how do you take things from machine learning, optimize across it, as an example, if you train some of these models, you can have noise in your data. yeah and you can have like slight differences or epsilon differences in, in some of your estimates. If you give that to an optimizer, the optimizer can can chase down these epsilons and give you really weird solutions. So we're really thinking about okay, how can we do better than this and how mm. can we bring the best of these techniques together? So that's one thing I'm really excited about. I'm also excited about just continuing to make these these products better and better. When I first came to Uber, uh, matching was you would request and we would send you the, the closest car. And when I joined Uber, it was the closest car in terms of, of drive time or how long it would take to pick you up. Got it. Previous to this, before my time at Uber, it was... Closest car in terms of of straight line distance. So Despite as, the, as the whatever was rise.
0: actually in between exactly. you. <laughs> exactly, nice. and, and
2: a funny quirk of the time is that they implemented this via something called haversine distance, which is straight line distance that takes the curvature of the Earth into account. Uh, so the I s-
0: astronauts, like, had good input here, but maybe not real world.
2: Yeah, and, and in, in the history of the company, I'm, I'm not I'm not convinced that this has ever mattered. And uh, <laughs> th- there's been a lot of wasted Arctan computations <laughs> God, on our servers. And, and nice. So it was initially greedy dispatch, mm. and then we've moved it to this batch matching system mm-hmm. and built up a lot of infrastructure uh, and knowledge about how to do this. And I'm really excited because we've got this amazing... Uh, technological foundation we can go build things on. yeah this allowed us to build express pool where we could increase the batch window size and add in walking computation. so, There's a ton of more cool stuff to do in this area, and I'm really excited about that.
0: Nice, fantastic. And um, I want to talk about your path a little bit as someone who expected to stay in academia and then sort of like analyzed where they were and decided that the interesting problems were really in industry. And with this concentration of of hard questions and interesting information being in industry, what would you say to a young graduate student who is looking for cool questions and trying to make a decision about that position for themselves these days?
2: So I guess first, I, I never expected to be in in academia. I I just never thought about where I might end up. (laughs) Um, I entertained the the, the fact. But uh, talking to grad students, I think it's a really exciting time in industry right Mm. now. I think there's a number of different companies working on some really interesting problems that are super impactful.
0: Yeah.
2: All my team are are data scientists here, and this is an incredibly nascent term that didn't exist when I started graduate school. Yeah. I think what I would say to them is that, There's amazing access to data in industry at the moment and people are solving some incredibly difficult, incredibly important problems. And what keeps me at Uber and what keeps me really excited about it is I get to work on these amazing problems that are super difficult, have huge impact and actually make people's lives better. We can change how people have access to transit in a city. Uh, One of the principles we approach problems in marketplace is about expanding access. Mm -hmm. And that's both true on the rider side about having express pool where we can have affordable modes of transit. And on the driver's side, too, we, we enable a huge number of drivers to earn in our platform. So you can work on these problems that really impact people's lives. And also, one of the things I really find exciting about Uber is we have an incredible cross-discipline team in, inside the marketplace mm. data science work. Uh, I'm a computer scientist by training. We have people from operations research backgrounds, statisticians, economists, experts in machine learning chemical engineers, physicists, <laughs> and it's been really rewarding for me to get to interact with people from these different fields and just learn with the different lens they approach problems with. And I really find I've learned a tremendous amount. And had I stayed in a computer science silo or stayed in a smaller subfield, I wouldn't have been exposed to that. And I wouldn't have learned as much as I've learned over the past couple of years.
0: What are what are some of the fundamental lessons you've learned about collaborating with people over your time here?
2: So economists are maniacal about causality. <laughs> that was a fun thing to learn. Nice. Um, being a computer scientist, you're trained to care about, oh, is this, is this thing predictive? Right, right. And, and just seeing this is a very different approach to things <laughs> about you know, worrying about what's endogenous, what's right. exogenous, right. what's causal. That's been incredibly fascinating for me to learn. But also, it's, it's, it's been incredibly important. And without learning it, I wouldn't be able to do a lot of the things we do in our team. A concrete example is we really spend a lot of time thinking about how do we make sure when we change things in our system that we can truly measure the output, mm. that, that if we think something's improved something, we're sure it has, and that it is indeed a causal change. And we work really closely with a lot of economists on measurement and things like that mm-hmm. just to ensure we, we get this right.
0: Yeah, the the human impact of, of changing something at Uber must be immediate and kind of incredible.
2: Yeah, uh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it, it, it with that comes comes a lot of responsibility. So we really want to make sure that when we're doing things, we're truly benefiting the system and, and everyone involved in it. At Uber, we're working on really exciting problems with a really amazing group of people. And that uh, is a shameless plug. We're really growing our team. <laughs> we, we want everyone who's interested to come talk to us. And if you're interested in learning more about some of the awesome problems we're working on and some of the cool science problems we're tackling, uber.com slash careers and search for marketplace.
0: Now, the, it's really interesting that you mentioned that you've had Uber has had a, a pretty big intellectual draw over the past couple of years with some really important acquisitions. Do you see it as being part of this sort of trend of building internal foundational research teams where you have this sort of like Bell Labs moment happening where people are just sort of bringing the talent in-house to, to answer these questions?
2: So what I think is really exciting about Uber from this perspective is that in a sense, our core products are research. Mm. A lot of what we're doing in our marketplace has never been done before. Mm-hmm. Building products like uh, shared rides and express pool and our batch matching systems are right at the cutting edge of science. So it's not so much that we're doing internal research to solve problems, is that building our products requires solving research level questions. Got it. And that's what makes it so exciting is there's a huge amount of investment and resources behind enabling us to do well solving these problems. And it's also really exciting because it's not just proving a theorem or writing a paper. These things have to work in the wild. And that's super exciting.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Owen O'Mahony, really amazing to be able to sit down and talk with him. And I'm just such a nerd for time series data. It's really interesting to be able to explore those ideas with him. So that's it for us this week on Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman.
1: And I'm Neil Lawrence.
0: Tune in next episode. Thank you.